This morning's sermon text comes from Romans 8, verses 34 to 39. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, For thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And now, Father, we confess openly and gladly that we are strangers and exiles in America. None of this service is about preserving America as a Christian nation, which it isn't. This service is about exalting Jesus Christ in America and Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan and China and Indonesia and Vietnam and Sudan and Algeria and Tunisia and Algeria and Brazil. Jesus is our King. And oh, how He would love to see the nations worship Him. And so we pray to that end that Osama bin Laden might be our brother in Christ. That's our longing. We bear no sword as Christians. We want salvation for all in the name of Christ who would believe in him. And to that end, we will lay down our lives and not take lives. And I pray, O oh God, that it would be clear in these days that the people of Jesus Christ are not synonymous with America. It is a sin-saturated, proud, arrogant country we live in, deserving of judgment. And so is every other country on the face of the earth. And so, Lord, we come broken, needy, desperate for grace. We are as guilty of hell as any terrorist is guilty of hell. And I pray, O oh Christ, that you would magnify your grace and your love in and through your church and forbid that there would be an undue entangling of the church of Jesus Christ with a civic religion called the American way. Oh, God forbid, I pray, that this misunderstanding among Muslims and others would endure. And grant, I pray, that Christians would stand and say, Christ is Lord, not Bush is Lord. And the way that leads to life is narrow. 
And few there be that find it, and it is not the American way. Oh, God, grant, I pray, that you would come and make this clear. And, Lord, spread the balm of Jesus' blood over all the pain of those who suffer. And may they take heart from the witness of Lisa Beamer, which we will hear shortly. And now may your word stand and be plain, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Five times now in Romans 8, five times Paul has asked a question that has not been answered in his own words because he's left it for us to answer. Questions that are meant to draw you in and give the answer because the answer spells out how spectacular it is to belong to Jesus. Question number one, verse 31. Who can be against us? Question number two, verse 32. How will he not with him graciously give us all things? Question number three, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Question number four, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Question number five today, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answers are so plain and they're so glorious that he expects us to give them and enjoy them. Answer number one, verse 31. No one can successfully be against us, not even terrorists. Answer number two, verse 32. God will supply everything we need, even when all seems lost. Answer number three, verse 33. No one can make a charge stick against us in the court of heaven, and there isn't any higher court. And therefore, answer number four, verse 34. No one can condemn us. And answer number five, verse 35. No one and no thing can separate us from the love of Christ. Now, the reason this 35th verse and this answer to that question is so relevant for the memory of 9-11 is because that Paul spells out in seven words the kinds of threats to the separation or to our love which echoed in that day, most of them. Let's read them. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We're in verse 35, midway. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? I think the reason he listed seven and not just one or two is so that we would not read one or two and say, oh yes, but there's another terrible thing that would separate you from the love of Christ. And so he made it a long list, a list that covers the whole range of miseries and pain that are inflicted either from natural circumstances or from other people. And he says, no, nobody. Now I want you to notice three things from verse 35. Number one, Christ is loving us now. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Christ is loving us now. I mention that because I think it would be possible for a wife who's just lost her husband 
to say, nothing will separate me from the love of my husband. Meaning, the memory of my husband's love will be so sweet, so precious, so deep, it will never cease to sustain me till the day I die. And that would be right. That's not what this text is saying. This is not the memory of the love of Jesus which he showed to sinners on the earth. Because verse 34 makes it crystal clear, he died, he rose, he reigns, he intercedes. And that intercession and reign over us is his love for us. He is loving us now. I love the thought that Christ loves me this very moment. I love that thought. That he now is interceding for me, which I think means he's taking all that he accomplished for me at Calvary and on Easter, and he's making sure that all of that saves me forever, now and into eternity with everlasting joy. We are being loved by Jesus right now. Second, this love of Christ is effective in protecting us from separation from him and therefore is not a universal love for all people, but a particular love for his people those who, according to Romans 8, 28, love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, that's a long statement. And some of you, I, I see, try to write these things down, and you never got that one down. Let me say it again. What I'm trying to do is to help you know that this love of Christ may or may not be directed to you right now. And it could be directed to you right now. This sentence, verse 35, would make no sense if the love applied to people who wind up in hell. If people go to hell, they're not experiencing this verse. This verse says, we won't be separated. Therefore, the love of Christ keeps us, and therefore it is not a love that he has for people who wind up in hell. I'll say it again, then I'll explain this love of Christ is effective in protecting us from separation and therefore is not a universal love for all, but a particular love for his people, his bride, those who, according to Romans 8, 28, are loving God and are called according to his purpose. This is the love of Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Jesus has a love for everybody, but he has a peculiar love for his bride, just like every husband in this room does, if he's a Christian, love every woman in this room and has a peculiar love, a covenant love for his bride. Jesus loves every woman and he has, and every man, and he has a covenant love for his bride. 
and he dies in a special way for his bride. And the specialness of it is, I won't let my bride be separated from me. I will keep my bride. I will hold my bride. I will intercede for my bride. I will come for my bride. None of my bride will be in hell. Now, what that puts on you is a a crucial question. Are you part of the bride? Are you part of the church for whom he secured everlasting union? And the answer is, do you trust him? It's not in your genes. And it's not written in any secret place for you to dig it out and say, oh, good, I see my name is on the list. It's do you trust him? If you trust him, if you love him, you're called and you're part of the bride. And I would commend to you at this point in the message, trust him. He died. He rose. He reigns. And he intercedes for all who trust him. Trust him. So my second point for you to see is that His love in this verse is an absolutely effective, omnipotent love to keep you from being separated from him. You know, the sad thing that I see on this sheet of paper here, which I printed out, which you'll see on TV Wednesday night probably, and some of you have seen already, there are going to be programs all over the place this week with people bearing witness to their separation from God in Jesus Christ. Separation from Jesus Christ. They, they print them of how 9-11 ended it with them and God. It's over. It ended it with them and Jesus. They were separated by tribulation. The opposite of verse 35 happened to thousands of people on 9-11. And that is sad. Some of you might be in this room. I could read you these testimonies. I can't bring myself to speak to him anymore. I used to pray, but no more. I might sound crazy, number two. I might sound crazy, but I cursed him. I damned him. I think God could have ended this thing. That's why I feel so strongly that I'm losing respect for him. And on and on the testimonies go. Verse 35 says, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. And for many, it did separate them from the love of Christ. Why? Time will tell. Time will tell whether they are in the bride. I just plead with you. The arms of Jesus are extended like this over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I've gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks. You would not. His arms are extended. In this message right now, the Lord Jesus is extending his arms, drawing all who would come into his bride. So don't resist it. Third, This omnipotent, effective, protecting love does not spare us from the calamities in this life, but brings us safe to everlasting joy. He's loving us right now in heaven. That's point number one. Point number two, this love is an omnipotent love that effectively brings about what it purposes. So it applies to his covenant people to whom you may belong by faith. And thirdly, 
this omnipotent, all-conquering love does not spare us from calamities or death, but brings us through calamity and death to everlasting joy. I get that from verse 35 and a certain angle on verse 35. Verse 35 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then it lists off these seven horrible things and ends with sword. Which I think meant very clearly for Paul, beheading, which is the way he died. But it hadn't happened to him yet. Now, someone might read verse 35 and say, no, no, I don't think that's what this text means. I don't think this text means that God will ordain for his people to walk through these horrible things, but that these things won't separate us from the love of Christ because he won't let these things happen to his people. I think that's what it means. Now, there are two reasons why it can't mean that. One is the word death in verse 38. Neither death nor life will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, now we don't have a list of things that could kill you. We have a statement, they did kill you. Death will not separate you. The sword, not just lifted up above you and stopped, won't separate you from the love of Christ. But the sword, severing head from body, will not separate you from the love of Christ. That's the point of verse 35, because death is mentioned in verse 38. Here's a a more clear and immediate reason. Verse 36 quotes Psalm 44, 22 with these words, As it is written, for your sake, we Christians are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You cannot make verse 35 mean He will rescue us from the sword when you get to verse 36. We are being killed all day long. Now, Americans, you have to understand our land for the last 300 years is an anomaly. Normal Christianity is persecution and danger. And only Americans who never read Operation World or never go to international websites, but only national ones, only Americans can under, can think that this is normal. That this is normal, what we're doing right now. No soldiers, no explosions, and no phone call threats, no plastered walls, no fire set. This is normal. This is not Normal. This is an anomaly, probably a footnote in history someday. All you have to do is read about Pakistan and read about Nepal and read about Sudan and read about Indonesia. We are the exception. Read about Vietnam. Go online and find out from www.gem.work.org, how many martyrs there will be this year, namely 164,000 at least in the world dying for their faith in Jesus Christ. So when you read this, don't say, oh my, that must be an old-fashioned verse because I sure haven't been killed. It isn't an old-fashioned verse. It's a verse that documents the anomaly of the American reality. 
Now, how do we respond to that, we Americans? I'll tell you how we should respond. We should respond with Hebrews 13, 3. Remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them. We have been blessed with 300 years of massive security and massive prosperity for one global reason. To magnify Jesus Christ in the hard places and to help our brothers and sisters and to create brothers and sisters where it's hard. We are blessed to be a blessing. We are not blessed to buy bigger houses and bigger cars and more vacations. We're blessed to cap our lifestyles and take the hundreds of millions and trillions of dollars that Christians have and give more than 0.2% to unreached peoples. That's why we are blessed, and it will not last. And while it is here, oh, may we spend and be spent for the cause of Christ, including, Lisa Beamer, such a good illustration for us here, including the people who suffer because of 9-11. They are candidates for your compassion and your giving, too. Now, I'm going to let Lisa Beamer bear witness in the rest of this sermon. Um, You know who she was, don't you? Todd Beamer was the one who said, let's roll on Flight 93 that crashed in Pennsylvania. And she was interviewed in Modern Reformation. She was interviewed in Decision Magazine. She was interviewed in World Magazine. She was interviewed in Newsweek Magazine. And good old Lisa has an unwavering and consistent testimony in every book. And it is wondrous. Not even Newsweek can keep her quiet. So I bless God for her in her pain. Her third baby was born in January. Lessons from Lisa. I have ten of them. I'll let her speak. Number one. Now, I'm connecting this with Romans 8.35 because in my judgment, Lisa Beamer is simply embodying and witnessing to what I just said about Romans 8.35. I think that's... This is illustration. This is not two separate sermons. This is Lisa illustrating the last 15 minutes. Here we go. Number one, embracing the sovereignty of God brings strength and hope. Quote, God knew the terrible choices the terrorists would make and that Todd Beamer, she's talking here, Todd Beamer would die as a result. He knew my children would be left without a father and me without a husband. Yet in his sovereignty and in his perspective on the big picture, he knew it was better to allow events to unfold as they did rather than redirect Todd's plans to avoid death. I can't see all the reasons he might have allowed this when I know he could have stopped it. I don't like his plan, the way his plan looks from my perspective right now, but knowing that he loves me and can see the world from start to finish helps me say it's okay. Another quote. If we believe wholeheartedly each moment that our destiny rests in the hands of Jesus Christ, the one with ultimate love and ultimate power, what do we have to be concerned about? Sounds like Paul. What do we have to be concerned about? Of course, 
you would answer lots of things. But now you know, now you know how to answer that question after five weeks in this section. What do we have to be concerned about? She says, of course our humanity, she says, clouds this truth many times, but hanging on to glimpses of it keeps everything in perspective. That's lesson number one. Embracing the sovereignty of God brings strength. Number two, don't presume to know better than God how to run the world. That is pride. Here's what she says. My faith wasn't rooted in governments, religion, tall buildings, or frail people. Instead, my faith and my security. Let me stop there and just remind you of last Sunday's summary sentence. The point of Romans 8 is massive security for merciful service through many sufferings. And what you're going to see in these nine lessons here is exactly that. She isn't just massively secure, as she documents here, but she's overwhelmingly merciful in what she's doing, and it's all through much suffering. My faith and my security were in God. A thought struck me. Who are you to question God and say that you have a better plan than he does? You don't have the same wisdom and knowledge that he has or the understanding of the big picture. In other words, it's pride to presume to know how to run the world better than God does. We also, she says, aren't privy to the perspective he has and shouldn't claim to know better than he does what should happen and shouldn't. Faith means that regardless of circumstances, we take him at his word that he loves us and will bring us to a good result if we trust and obey him. Obviously, the ramifications of this understanding have been tremendous for me since 9-11. Lesson number three. God has a good purpose in all the hard things that happen to his people. Here's what she says. God's sovereignty has been made clear to me. When I am tempted to become angry and ask, what if and why us? God says, I knew on, December, on September 10, and I could have stopped it, but I have a plan for greater good than you can ever imagine. I don't know God's plan. And honestly, right now, I don't like it very much. But I trust that he is true to his promise in Romans 8:28. We know that all things God works for the good of those who love him. My only responsibility is to love God. He'll work our best. And then one of the interviewers noted she signs her letters now under her name, Genesis 50:20, which says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's the way she's signing her letters now. This is number four. The fourth lesson is death and suffering press in on us the perspective of eternity. Death and suffering press on our minds the perspective of eternity. She wrote, September 11 has shown me the reality of eternity in a dynamic way these past few months. When I'm overwhelmed with sadness at what I've lost in this life, he is quick to give me his eternal perspective. Lisa, he says, this life is just a blip on the radar screen compared to your future with me in heaven. He says, 
The best thing that you can imagine on earth is garbage compared to what awaits you. Fifth, God's distribution of suffering is not equal. And one hard thing may prepare you for another. This is one of the things I've learned as a pastor over the years is God doesn't spread out suffering in the church equally. Some people bear way more, way more than others. So, when Lisa was 15, her father suffered an aneurysm at work and died the next morning in the hospital. And she says, when my father died, faith wasn't so easy anymore. I spent five years asking why, expressing my anger, saying it's not fair, before God helped me realize that he is who he is all the time in good circumstances and bad. He is the all-powerful, all-loving, but that doesn't mean that as a citizen of this fallen world, he protects us from every bad event. And as I pondered that, what hit me was, had God not patiently prepared Lisa Beamer with the death of her father for five years of struggle, we would not have the massive testimony we have today in response to the death of her husband. What we would have is five years of criticism and anger, which would not serve the church well. But now what do we have? The first print run on Let's Roll is one million copies. It'll be in every airport in the country. And one sentence from it uh, goes like this. You think you deserve a happy life and get angry when it doesn't always happen like that? In fact, you are a sinner and deserve only death. The fact that God has offered you hope of eternal life is amazing. You should be overwhelmed with joy and gratitude. That's a sentence from her memoir. And my point is, when God strings sufferings together in a life, one at age 15 to 20, and another now with the loss of her husband, he's not fumbling the ball here. He's saying, Lisa Beamer is going to be one of the most powerful spokesmen for my glorious love and sovereignty in the early 21st century. And I'm getting this 15-year-old girl ready. So teenagers, don't begrudge your pain. God may have something really remarkable for you. Number six, God's love takes care of us right now in our suffering, not just later. Here's what she says. He knows that I'm, I'm hurting and in need right now. Every day he provides encouragement and resources just for me. Little things show me he has, is with me. Scripture that are just the words I need to hear. A call from a friend when I was lonely. Help with a task that I can't do alone. A hug and an I love you from one of my children. God's love is truly sufficient to meet any need that I have. Number seven. Calamity calls for quick, practical love like meals and babysitting. Lisa. The picture of the church 
as the hands and the feet of Christ with each person having a special gift has been well portrayed to me these last months. In the beginning, it was immediate practical help that I needed, meals, child care, managing the phone calls and the mail. Now that we're out of the crisis mode, it is rebuilding help that I need, counsel, encouragement, prayer. So Bethlehem, be there. Be there. Be there with the meals. Be there with the babysitting. Be there with the phone calls. Be there for people, okay? That's real love in Christianity. Number eight, quiet confidence in God's power and goodness through suffering create occasions for witness. Just a sentence here. Mary Lee Melvin, who uh, knows her, says... Her disarming, quiet confidence in God's purposes must be the reason Larry King has had her on his show 11 times. Number nine. Trusting in God's sovereign care in all circumstances frees you from greed and releases love for others. Frees you from greed for loving others. Now, you know what happened when she became almost an instant icon because of his words, let's roll, and because the president invited her to his speech a few days later. The money simply poured in. People put Lisa Beamer, New Jersey, and it got to her. What did she do with all that money? Quote, I didn't feel comfortable keeping this for ourselves when there were many unknown families. Isn't that a beautiful recognition? My husband happened to say something. I happened to be invited. So I'm getting all the attention. And there's, what, about 10,000 kids who lost a parent and all all this pain and nobody knows their names. They don't get any press at all. They just live with the loss. And she's thinking that way. Why is she thinking that way? Because God's taking care of her. And she's free. She doesn't spend every day saying, oh, poor me, oh, poor me, oh, poor me. She's free to love. And so, with a good friend, she creates the Todd M. Beamer Foundation to assist children who lost a parent in 9-11. There's another way it expresses itself, too. She said, my family and I mourn the loss of Todd deeply and that day, and we still do. But because we have a hope in the Lord, we know beyond a doubt that one day we'll see Todd again. I hurt for the people who don't have the same hope, and I pray that they will see something in our family that will encourage them to trust in the Lord. Last, number 10. Without God, the word is hopeless. Without God, the world is hopeless. She went to Shanksville, Pennsylvania, the site where the jet came down, where her husband died. The Sunday before that Monday, they had a great service of Christ-exalting worship and gratitude for the life of Todd Beamer. And she was mightily encouraged by it. Then she went on Monday to the service at Shanksville on the field where the... uh, plane came down and her husband died. 
She said, on Monday, as I listened to the well-intentioned speakers who were doing their best to comfort, but with little, if any, direct reference to the power of God to sustain us, I felt I was sliding helplessly down a high mountain into a deep crevice. As much as I appreciated the kindness of the wonderful people who tried to encourage us, that afternoon was actually one of the lowest points of my grieving. It wasn't the people or event or even the place. Instead, it struck me how hopeless the world is when God is factored out of the equation. So my closing exhortation, and Jesus Christ speaks it, the Apostle Paul speaks it, Lisa Beamer speaks it, and I now speak it to you. Don't factor God out of the equation of your suffering. Don't factor Jesus Christ out of the equation of your life and your suffering. He died, he rose, he reigns, he intercedes for all who trust him so that we might have eternal joy in and through and on the other side of our suffering in the presence of God. So as you go, go on the rock. And don't be shaken by any suffering. God bless you as you go. Amen.